All right, good morning. It's great to see you all here. If you are just joining us or if you're just coming back for college, for example, we are just about to wrap up actually our summer sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. We've been looking all summer long at the nine different flavors of the fruit of the Spirit. And we come to our last one today. So I'd love to actually begin, as we have been beginning, by having us say together what's been our theme verse for this series out of Galatians 5. That'll be up on the screen. Let's read this together. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So self-control is highlighted today. That's our last one, and that's what we'll be looking at. And uh, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think self-control But uh, I was exposed to this term at a very early age, actually, in in elementary school. It was on my report cards in the the public school. And it turns out uh, my mom has saved my report cards, so she she sent me one this week. And and, uh, my regular grades are over there. And and you can see this other section, growth in citizenship. So apparently, you know, that's just a part of being a good citizen for anybody is practicing some kind of self-control, so that practice of self-control is down there. And I was consistent. You can see I I got a lot of S's for satisfactory uh, across the board. Not excellent, as it turns out, um, but satisfactory. I I learned to play the game, at least. I learned how to have satisfactory self-control. And it was always a good threat for me in school, the teacher, you know, if I was acting up, like, oh, I don't know about your self-control. And I would think, oh, I don't want to get an N or a U and bring it home to my parents, so I learned to do just enough or not do just enough so that I wouldn't get in trouble. And it's been hard not to actually kind of project that onto my Christian life when I've come across self-control as a fruit of the Spirit, to not just think, oh, well, it's just kind of do enough or not do enough to stay out of trouble. But I hope we'll see today that it's far, far more and more wonderful than that. But what is it? What are we talking about when we talk about self-control as a fruit of the Spirit? All these things we've talked about, love, joy, peace, patience, and the like, are things that non-Christian people have a category for, but we've been talking in this series about what's kind of distinct about a Christian uh, fruit of the Spirit, Christian self-control. So uh, let's dive in, and I want to try to define self-control a little bit, and then I'll talk a lot about what self-control is actually not, and I think that will help us to define what it is. But to define self-control... I want to actually look at the word that it is uh, in the Greek, it, which it is a word built off of the verb krateo. And the verb krateo is a really common verb in the New Testament, and it actually gets translated a whole different bunch of ways in different parts of the New Testament. So krateo can be translated seize, or arrest, or take hold of, or just hold, or grab onto, grab hold, but all these kinds of things, seize, hold on to, grab. Very hands-on kind of verb, krateo. Got to have our hands on something. It's very hands-on, very active, and and self-control is built off of that verb. Now, a lot of the Christian life is actually about letting go of control, relinquishing control of our future, of our plans, of of various things to God. Um, And that's a very important part of our Christian walk is, is kind of letting go of control. But Here, there seems to be something that we're actually supposed to hold on to, to krateo, and have control of, you know? And sometimes it's helpful to pray, Jesus, take the wheel, and and relinquish control. But there are times and ways in which 
Actually, Jesus wants to empower us by his spirit to take the wheel, in a sense. So, over what? Over what are we supposed to have this kind of krateo, this sort of self-control? And to, to help us dig into this a little bit more, I'd actually like to open up to Galatians 5 and zoom out a little bit from this one, this key verse we've had about the fruit of the Spirit. I'd like to just kind of zoom out and, and read a little bit more of the context around this, this verse. So we're going to open up to Galatians 5 and begin in verse 13. And Paul says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We'll stop there. So, in the context, what we're talking about in terms of self-control, what we're talking about in terms of what to have krateo over, seems to have something to do with the flesh, with the desires of the flesh, with the passions of the flesh, the works of the flesh. And I'll dig into what that means a little bit more. But it has to do a lot with, with passions and desires on our part and the ways that they're carried out. The acts of the flesh, this long, rather long list, verses 19 through 21, lists several things uh, that are kind of compulsions and passions that we might act out of. And the, the list ends with, and the like. So this isn't even really an exhaustive list. This is just kind of a sampling, a representative list of the kinds of passions, the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of things over which the Spirit wants to empower us to have self-control. And then it, it does talk a fair amount about the desires and the passions that underlie these things. And that reminded me of what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, which I think will be up on the screen as well. Jesus says kind of where these things come from. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. That's so a similar list. It's not the same list because, again, they're not, they're not exhaustive. They're rep representative lists. But Jesus gets at what causes these things, these works of the flesh, is kind of underlying desires and passions from within, from ourself. So there's something in ourself, something about ourself 
that leads to these things that, ne- that we need to actually have some sort of control over. And you could add anything to this list. You know, workaholism, consumerism, materialism, different compulsions and addictions that we have. All sorts of things. They come kind of from within, and there's a way that self-control allows us to have freedom from these things. And it's interesting, it's not spirit control. It's not just overriding us completely and getting us out of the way. It's self-control. There's something about how Jesus restores us where our self can have the proper kind of control over our passions and over our behaviors and our lives. I want to look at another scripture real quick from Psalm 32. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. This is the kind of relationship God wants to have with us, not where he needs to just yank us around and and control us by force or coercion or anything like that. He wants us to be able to kind of live and walk in the ways that are honoring to him. Last week, Pastor Tom was uh, defining gentleness for us, and I love the phrase he used. He said, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is actually power under control. Power under control. It's, It's a good thing taken and and submitted to Jesus for his good purposes. And I'm going to kind of borrow from that phrase. And our first working definition I'll use for self-control is passion under control. Passion under control. Now let's talk a little bit about what that does not mean. What is self-control not? If it's passion under control, what is it not? One thing that self-control is not is the elimination of passion altogether. It's important that we get this, because it's easy to read a passage like Galatians 5 and and misinterpret it a bit, so I want to make sure we get this. Verse 24 says, "Uh, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And a lot of times that's been interpreted to mean that anything of the body, any kind of passion, any kind of desire is automatically bad, and, and we need to get rid of it. That's not exactly what it's saying. And, and there's kind of a, a dualistic worldview where the spiritual is better than the physical and that sort of thing. But that's actually not a biblical Christian worldview. When it talks about the flesh, it's not just talking about the body. God actually loves the body. God made the human body. God assumed a human body in Jesus Christ. And God's ultimate hope for us is to raise us up in bodies to live a bodily, eternal life. So it's not that the body is bad, necessarily. But flesh here really means that within us that's been corrupted by sin. That which out of us flows uh, desires for things that are outside of what God wants for us. Some of your translations might say sinful nature instead of flesh. And that gets at more what it means. It's that within us that by nature wants what's contrary to what God wants. But flesh in and of itself, the body is not the bad thing. And passion and desire in and of themselves are not necessarily evil. Passion and desire, like many things, are good gifts that God gave us, good gifts that God created that have been disordered by sin and brokenness. But just because they're so disordered and so broken doesn't mean that the gift itself needs to be done away with. Desire itself is not an evil thing. 
I read a book recently, a really kind of provocative, but I thought great book by a woman named Deb Hirsch called Redeeming Sex, Naked Conversations About Spirituality and Sexuality. And she draws in a good connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. How they're really both kind of a drive, a desire, a need to connect outside of ourselves with someone beyond ourselves, a drive, a need for intimacy and for union with another outside of ourselves. Now, that good gift has been disordered, and all of us act out of that in ways that are broken. Every one of us. It's interesting that the list in Galatians and Jesus' list both begin with sexual immorality, which is the word porneia, which is a pretty far-reaching, broad term for anything that's outside of God's design for sex. And all of us, me, you, anyone in here, have acted out our sexuality in broken ways. We've all, our, our desire for intimacy, our need for connection outside of ourselves, we've all acted out of it in broken ways. But it, the, the solution isn't just get rid of desire altogether, because it is that drive, that need for connection outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, that drives our spirituality and our ultimate hunger for union with God. We're actually going to begin a new sermon series in a couple weeks on worship. And I think we're actually going to call it something like your heart's desire, something to that effect. Desire in itself is not an evil thing to be eliminated, but it is something to be controlled. Same with passion. Passion in and of itself is not a bad thing. You know, I used to actually pray that I would be a less passionate person because I've seen the passion in me. I'm kind of, I have strong emotional reactions to things. I have a fuse that's pretty easily lit, and I've seen that play out in all sorts of broken ways, and I've kind of, I kind of hated that about myself, and it, it just kind of happened. So like a few weeks ago, some of us in the church and, and our friends went to the Worcester Bravehearts game, uh, the championship game, and, and we're sitting with a bunch of Worcester fans, and then this dude shows up from Nashua. He's a fan of the other team. Parks it right next to us, and, and he, he breaks out this cowbell cowbell, right? And he just kept banging the cowbell. Anytime anything good would happen for Nashua, the cowbell over and over again. And then he puts the cowbell away and he picks out a drum. And he hits the drum. And, and we were losing. The Bravehearts were kind of getting, getting walloped. And, and so it was really kind of like rubbing it in over and over again. And I'm sure the other Journey people there, you were thinking lots of godly and gracious <laughs> thoughts toward cowbell guy, but, but not me. And Liz could see it in my face. I would look over at him, and I just thought all sorts of mean, ugly, nasty thoughts toward him. He just lit my fuse. I wanted to say something so mean to put him down, but that's where self-control comes in. And it's important to have. Now, I used to just want, like, think, want to not be like that at all. Like, why do I have to have this, this passion that gets out of control? Right? And I would pray, Lord, would you make me just kind of like a really peaceful and serene person? You know, I'd pray for like detachment from any sort of passion. That's not really a Christian prayer, honestly. And that's not what God wants for me. Because it's that same fuse that gets lit in me. It's the same passion and emotional response to things that's done a lot of good through my life. Honestly, I will go to war for you in prayer if I feel like you're being spiritually oppressed. That lights a fire in me. Most of my work on campus with InterVarsity has been about starting new 
fellowships on campuses that don't have a gospel witness on them because somehow the thought of people being able to go through their college experience and not have access to Jesus lights a fire in me. I get mad and I don't like it and it actually drives me to really good action. An image that I found really helpful once is that of a scalpel. Really sharp tool scalpel in it. And because it's sharp, it is dangerous and it could kill you. But a scalpel can also save your life. And the solution to the danger is not to dull the blade because then it's not good for anything. The, da- the, the invitation is to learn how to use it properly. And so I think God's invitation for me is not to just be, be a passionless, detached person, but to be a person with self-control who does not waste my fuse on cowbell guy, but who is willing to respond with passion in godly and ordered ways to bring about good and justice in the world. Passion in itself, desire in itself, is not all bad, but we need self-control. We need to have our passion under control so that it's used for good. So that's one lie about passion, or about self-control, is that passion just needs to be done away with. Now another lie about self-control, something it's not, is that it's repressive. So whereas this first lie would say, oh, pa- all passion, desire is just all bad, get rid of it, don't, don't even talk about it, this lie would kind of say that, you know, your passions and desires are totally natural, and so it's only reasonable that you would act out of them. It's dehumanizing to not, and any person, any religion that would advocate self-control and the control over your passions, that's got to be some kind of repression or oppression, doesn't it? That's repressive. Now, the problem with that line of thinking, well, a couple things. One is that we tend to be actually pretty selective about what we apply that to. And honestly, it varies quite a bit from time and culture to, to time and culture. So, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages, people might have had a really high value on chastity, but not really had any sort of self-control when it came to violence. Whereas in a different setting today, it might be the opposite way around. We, we expect self-control when it comes to violence, but in terms of uh, you know, other things, whatever. Do whatever you want. Or it could, you know, whatever your context is, we tend to kind of think some things are just unreasonable to, to try to tone down. Maybe it's our consumerism. You know, we, we kind of swim in a culture where it's like, well, if you, if you can have something, you should get it. There's all kinds of things we should just have, right? And if you can afford it, or with credit, even if you can't afford it, you should get it, right? We're selective about what we think is reasonable or unreasonable to practice self-control with, and it varies. So there's not really one standard to it, but it tends to fall along the lines of what's most convenient for us. Tends to fall along the lines of what would make us happy. And, and then we decide that it's, well, the rest is just human nature. You know, we can't really be expected to have self-control in this area. It's human nature to decide that some things are just impossible. And some passions need to be indulged. But, by the power of the Holy Spirit, There is no passion over which we cannot exercise godly self-control. There's no passion over which the Holy Spirit cannot empower us to exercise self-control. Some of them are just really hard, and they involve struggle, and they involve delayed gratification and a suspension of our temporary happiness. And we learned a few weeks ago the difference between happiness and joy. 
And I really think self-control is an invitation to joy, but it does come sometimes at the expense of our temporal happiness. But God can rule in us over any passion. And I think that's actually quite humanizing, not dehumanizing. Because I think self-control is a way that God restores us to our full humanity that we were created to bear. So we were created, men and women, in the image of God to rule and to subdue and to exercise dominion. And now, again, that's a good gift that's been distorted in all sorts of awful ways. But we were created to have some sort of autonomy and, and some agency and some rule in the world. And God wants to restore that in us. We become more fully human, not less, when we exercise self-control. More fully human and not less. And we display to a watching world that no, we are not bound by our passions. That there is a greater authority and there is a greater freedom than the passions that we feel. So, I would argue self-control is not repressive. It actually re restores us to the fullness of who we were created to be, the fullness of our humanity, and is an invitation to freedom. Paul says in Galatians, it is for freedom that you were set free. So that's kind of maybe I what I would call the irreligious lie about self-control, that any sort of faith system or any kind of uh, philosophy that would, that would cause you to deny any of your passions is somehow bad and repressive. But now a third thing I want to mention is what I would call the religious lie, which is that self-control is a way to earn God's favor. That's not what we're talking about either. Self-control is a way to earn God's favor. Religion says that if we do certain things or don't do certain things, then we can be right with God. God will love us. God will accept us. We can have favor with God. The whole book of Galatians, the whole letter of Galatians, Paul wrote in strong response to this sort of idea. He was refuting people who were going around saying, okay, yeah, you believe that Jesus died for your sins and Jesus makes you right with God. That's nice. But you also have to do X, Y, Z, external religious behavior in order to be fully accepted by God. And Paul comes at that with guns blazing because that is not the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel, in fact. Religion says if we do certain things or don't do certain things, then we earn God's favor, then we earn God's acceptance and God's approval. The gospel is the complete other way around. We are accepted by what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. We have full favor if we're made new in him full favor with God. And we have self-control out of that. Self-control flows out of favor with God. It flows out of God's acceptance. It is not a way to earn it. And this logic can, can harm us in a couple ways. If we think self-control is a way to earn God's favor, if we're doing well, you know, if we are practicing self-control, we might think maybe, maybe God owes us something. You know, look, I, I laid down this desire. I, I didn't I didn't buy that thing and I gave to the refugee backpacks or, you know, I didn't do such and such a thing. So, you know, surely God must really uh, love me now, be pleased with me now, right? And, and maybe, maybe I can kind of get a favor from God. I mean, come on, look, God, I did this. I mean, you kind of owe me one. But that's, that's just not how it works. That is, the, that is the lie that what we do earns God's favor. But on the flip side, if we're really struggling we're struggling to have self-control, we can feel like, oh man, I, I just can't even talk to God right now. 
I was talking with a friend about a week ago who's had a, he's a brother in Christ and he's had kind of a long journey of, of battle with various substance abuse issues. And he's seen a lot of dramatic changes, a lot of victory in his life. But anyone who's been down that road can tell you it's, it's uneven and, and some days are, are better than others. And things don't always change overnight. And, and, and some, yeah, some days are tough. And this friend was telling me he's really learning the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is the Holy Spirit saying, oh, uh, hold on, you might not want to do this. Don't do this. Go this way. Condemnation is the devil saying, oh, look at you. What's wrong with you? You screw it. Can't you practice any self-control? How could God love someone like you? And that is a lie from the devil. And it's the same logic that what we do or don't do earns God's favor and God's love and God's approval. And self-control flows out of God's love and God's favor and God's approval. There's not a way to earn it. And in fact, I don't know how you can practice self-control apart from knowing the love and favor and transformative power of God. And sadly, I feel like when it comes to self-control, many times when, we're at, when we feel at our weakest, when we slip, when we stumble, is when we feel the most distant from God. And those are the times when we need God the most. When we slip, when we stumble, and we struggle, when things feel like they're getting the best of us, that's when we need to run into God's arms, confess to him, receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, receive his transformation. So we've just got to know that self-control flows out of God's approval, not a way to earn it. And we need to communicate that to one another. When we are at our lowest and we, we are at our most down, when we are struggling the most, that's not the time to be, ooh, I don't know if I can go to church with you. No, that is the time to communicate the love and the grace of God when they need it the most. When we need grace the most, we need to show grace the most. As a matter of fact, I'm going to add a fourth to this list that's not going to be on the slide. It's that self-control is not an individual effort. Self-control is not a do-it-yourself project. Religion is a do-it-yourself project, but the fruit of the Spirit is not, and, and self-control is not meant to be done alone. Every, every you and every verb in this passage in Galatians is plural, and it's written to a community. And none of us were meant to walk the road of self-control by ourselves, especially when it gets difficult. I want to start to tie some of this together. And share with you uh, an example of a, a guy named Ed Shaw. He's a pastor in, in England, and he wrote a, a book I read recently that I find really beautiful, just a beautiful and powerful book. And it's called Same-Sex Attraction and the Church, The Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life. And I just love the, the subtitle, The Surprising Plausibility of the Celibate Life. No matter who you are, what your orientation. You know, to be an adult in this society, like celibacy, there's a lot of words that come to people's mind when you hear it, but plausible is not, not one of them. But Ed Shaw shares out of his own journey as a man for his whole life has been attracted exclusively to other men. 
and has sought to submit that desire to Jesus, to submit to the teachings of Scripture, to submit to the authority of the Bible, which would say that that's not to be acted out. And he shares his story in a vulnerable and beautiful way to show, actually, this life, this is plausible. It's plausible, but it's hard. Just because it's plausible does not mean it's easy. It's very difficult. And in my work in campus ministry, I've walked with a number of students who've walked this journey, and it's difficult. Sincere Christian students who are desiring to honor God and to submit to his word and who struggle with powerful attraction to the same sex and they're trying to figure out what to do. And it's hard enough as it is, but man, we say so many stupid things that make it even harder. On the one hand, they get the powerful voice of culture over and over telling them, look, this is just who you are, and to not act it out would be foolish, it would be unnatural, and it would almost be like a betrayal. I mean, come on. You have to find ways to live this out. And really, that's actually not freedom. It's kind of a saying, well, look, you've got no choice. This is the way to go. And it's especially troubling for a person who's trying to submit to what the Bible is saying. It doesn't feel like freedom, and it feels like another form of oppression. But then, there's, then they get it from the church, and they get it from Christians too. All these unhelpful things. That's a way to earn God's favor. Like, you know, get it together, and, 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 then, and then you can have fellowship with us. That's not helpful. Or that you're on your own to figure this out, which is awful to anyone struggling with anything. Or just try to get rid of all your passion and all your desire. It's got to be bad. It's just, nah, it's not good. Pray that God would take it away. That's really not a helpful thing to say either. Because Ed Shaw has prayed that prayer plenty of times. And so have a lot of people I know. And more often than not, it's not answered in the way that they want. And freedom for Ed Shaw has not been elimination of passion and desire. Freedom for him has been self-control and a daily submitting of that passion and desire to the Lordship of Jesus. That's the kind of freedom we're invited into. It's hard enough as it is without us saying things that make it even harder. And, and I just want to say, you know, if that has been your struggle, this particular thing, as a you know, straight male Christian minister, I, I really just want to apologize today. And I want to say I'm sorry for ways that we've taken a difficult struggle and made it more difficult rather than walking with you in it and sharing this journey with you and bearing one another's burdens as the body of Christ. We are walking together in all of our journeys towards freedom and self-control. And I love what Ed Shaw says. He says, so, do you want to make the life of Christians who experience same-sex attraction more plausible? Then do the same sort of countercultural things. Repent and stop seeing your personal happiness as the authority in your life. And embrace God's word as your authority. It's not just for some people to practice self-control to the point where it's hard and it's painful. It is for every single follower of Jesus Christ 
And it's going to be something different, perhaps, for each of us. But we need to walk in it together and all make countercultural choices, whether it's our sexuality, whether it is our spending and our consumerism, whether it is our anger and our volatile temper and our interactions with one another and how we speak towards one another, how, how we handle our frustration. Maybe it's our various addictions, whether it's substance abuse or screens or technology or whatever. Whatever it is, we're called to self-control. We're called to walk in this together. And, that, and Ed Shaw goes on, I'll read one more thing. He says, experience the temporary unhappiness that this will often bring in certain hope of the lasting happiness that God's word promises will eventually be all yours in his new creation forever and a day. I want to share one last definition of self-control. We've talked about it as passion under control. And another, th- another way I would describe it is this. It's the first fruits of freedom. I kind of stole that phrase from the title of a book by a Clark University professor about the, the liberation of, of slaves after the Civil War and the first uh, liberated slaves to settle in Worcester. Great book. You should read it. But I love that phrase, the first fruits of freedom. And it reminds me of Romans chapter 8. And I really believe that um, self-control is a first fruits of freedom. It is a demonstration of freedom over our passions and desires of the flesh. And we testify that there is a power and a freedom greater than these things. But it's a first fruits of an ultimate freedom that we will one day experience. And I want to read a bit from Romans chapter 8. Paul wrote Romans like 20 years after Galatians. A lot of the same themes, but filled out a little bit more. And he says this, starting in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes with God's people in accordance with the will of God. There's a present freedom and a future freedom talked about here. And the present freedom comes with some present sufferings. And it comes with some struggle. And it comes with groaning to be fully free. But that full freedom is coming when the whole creation is liberated from bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. Ed Shaw is banking on that. He calls us to bank on that and to join in self-control now, in the first fruits of our freedom now, 
in hopes of enjoying total freedom one day when we see Jesus face to face. Our desires are completely pure and met in him. When we will be passionate people in bodies in the kingdom of God, totally free to love him and to love one another. That freedom is coming and we testify with the first fruits of our freedom through our self-control now as we exercise our freedom to choose how to respond to our passions and to choose to submit them to Jesus together. Father, we we just come before you as a community of, of people on a journey and Lord, I know that self-control was never my favorite thing growing up, and I trust that for a lot of us it, it might not be. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk the road of self-control in the way that you design it, Lord, that you would free us from any lies and any unnecessary burdens and make it harder than it needs to be, but that where it does need to be hard, you'd give us grace from you and from one another to urge one another on. I pray, Lord, that you would restore each one of us here now and forever into the fullness of who you've created us to be, filled with passion, filled with desire, but completely submitted to you and living out of love for you and in knowledge of your love for us. We need your grace, Lord. We thank you that the gospel is grace and you have it here in abundance for us. Would we experience a touch of your grace where we need one today and this week? In Jesus' name, amen.